Well, we have another capacity crowd. We had a wonderful crowd this morning for the worship service and the Bible study hour as well. And uh, I think that I'm going to suggest at Carthage that we try this format sometimes on Sundays during our gospel meeting because uh, it is so encouraging to see the building filled again this afternoon. I was telling someone this morning about hearing a fellow on the radio many years ago uh, up at Cookville. He was uh, on WHUB, if I remember correctly. Anyway, he said, we're going to have... Uh, all day dinner and preaching on the grounds. And uh, we have had uh, preaching on the grounds and we've had almost an all day dinner. I'm telling you what, uh, they brought it in by the front end loader loads back there today. And uh, if you were looking for, uh, some of you kids looking for a casserole dish to take as a, as a token of your religious practices to school, and demonstrate, you've probably heard that joke, uh, the little fellow whose family went, attended the Church of Christ in town uh, took a casserole dish as to represent his religion because they, you know, always serving casseroles. We had a lot of casseroles and we had beans and potatoes and just all kinds of good things and I told somebody that that was sort of a, a blessing in disguise and wasn't planned that way but my family had been having to eat kind of fast foods. We had the grandkids, you know, and, you know, they want to go to all these fast foods places. I was getting hungry for some real honest-to-goodness country grub, and we got it today. And I, I appreciate so much your hospitality and, and the fact that we were able to enjoy that meal with you. And for all who were involved in preparing it, we genuinely say from the depths of our heart, we appreciate it. So many preaching brethren in this audience today all of whom I'm indebted to in one way or another over the years. So many of you have been encouraging to me in so many ways, and I'd like to talk about each one of you for a good while, but we're not here to do that, and you understand that. But your presence means a lot to me. And there are some family members here. Uh, my sister-in-law, Tootie, is here, and my brother, Roger, and other sister-in-law, Ruby, is here, and I'm glad Roger and Ruby made it uh, this afternoon. The last time I was in a meeting here, they went to church at Antioch on Sunday night, and they said, well, we'll have time to go up to Pippin and be with the brethren up there and hear Edward preach. So they drove up here and got to the parking lot, and they said, Ruby said, well, it must be early, Roger. You know, nobody's here. And uh, they sat out there in the parking lot for a while, you know, and and Roger looked in his mirror, if I remember correctly, and he saw the sign. He said, Ruby, they met this afternoon at 2 o'clock. <laughs> and uh, they missed that service. They came that uh, Sunday night. And so I'm glad they were able to make it today. So many of you that we have known and loved for so many years, we appreciate your being here. For those of you who weren't here this morning, we're studying maybe in what is to you an unlikely place, and that is the book of Haggai, one of the minor prophets. We've been doing the study of the minor prophets on Wednesday night in Carthage for some time, and, and I have been so impressed with this material and from this book that we've been able to draw from it and from other sources, people who have studied the Bible a lot longer than I have. I thought it would be good to just use the three lessons today to talk about the book of Haggai, to see 
how little times have changed. There is a history of God's people down through the ages. And you're familiar with this, I'm sure. But as you read and study the Bible, there will be events that transpire that lead the people to a deep faith in God and then uh, to recognize their need for Him. And then after a while, they begin to wander in another direction. And Haggai is called to bring the people of God back to the task to which they were originally assigned. And when you, when you go back in the history of the children of Israel, you see this over and over again. They cried out to God for deliverance in Egypt. Their burdens became so great. And Stephen, in rehearsing the history of the people, mentions that in Acts 7 that God heard their cries. And uh, he sent them a deliverer. And Moses led them out of the land, and they had not been away from Egypt very long until they were already beginning to complain and murmur and bicker about this, that, and the other. And so God had to keep them in the wilderness 40 years to try to get that out of them and to prepare them to enter the promised land. And so finally, they were able to go into the land under the leadership of Joshua. And things went pretty well. And one of the last things that Joshua did, it seems, is called all the people together in Joshua 24 and said, Choose you this day whom you will serve, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And you know, the people answered him back and said, We'll serve the Lord. We're going to serve the Lord. You leave Joshua 24 and go to Judges 2. And in verse 16, you read that the people departed from the way of the Lord very quickly. And we all know the history of that period of the Judges, don't we? Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. People were doing their own thing. They were going their way. And we talked about the way of the Lord this morning as it's revealed. And when you look at the book of Haggai, two times in chapter 1, he says, Consider your ways. They were going their way as opposed to walking in God's way. And three times in chapter 2, he uses that word consider again. He says, consider this. Consider this. Consider this. Trying to bring them back to the realization of what their task was. What they were given to do was to rebuild the temple. The book of Ezra documents the fact that that was their assignment. They were to come back and rebuild the temple that the Babylonians had destroyed under Nebuchadnezzar. They knew what their assignment was, but somehow or the other they got sidetracked. When they got back, they had so much zeal, they immediately began to relay the foundation. They got the foundation laid and then 
For 16 years, they didn't do anything. They had done absolutely nothing toward the reconstruction of the temple. And I pointed out this morning that God told them to get up to the hills, get the wood, get it down there, and start building that temple. And finally, the Lord, through Haggai, stirred up Zerubbabel and the high priest, and they got busy and started the construction of the temple, and in five years it was finished. Now, we talked about the importance of considering our ways. And we looked at the ways that the people of Israel were following when they were delaying building the temple. There was procrastination. Selfish procrastination. They just kept waiting. They intended to build it, but they just didn't get to the task at hand. And then there was self-preservation. Haggai talks about all the things they were doing for themselves. They were feeding themselves, drinking, clothing themselves, putting their money in bags that had holes in them. And things just weren't working out for them. And Haggai, in effect, tells them, For the Lord, you've lost your way. You have perverted or reversed your priorities. Your priority in coming here was to build the house of God. What are you doing? You're building your own houses and forgetting about God's. At one time, these people lived in tents. For years and years and years, they lived in tents. Now they were intent on having their own houses. Calls them sealed houses. And at least my Bible has in the margin the word roofed. They'd put the roofs on their houses. But there hadn't been anything built on the foundation that they had previously laid. And so he tells them to get to the task at hand. Now, as you think about what they were doing, you would have to say that it was a restoration type thing. Boy, I saw it this morning. Just before, as I was leaving South Carthage, came across the river bridge, came around the curb or two by the Caney Fork and all of that, and I saw it coming. 55 Chevrolet. Man, it was beautiful. It was, if I remember correctly, not the salmon and white, or gray rather, but cranberry and gray. I mean, it was slick. Now, I'm not into restoring cars, but I know a man who did for years and years and years. He did his last one. He's in his 80s. He did his last one just a little while ago. Did one from a son-in-law. It was one of the last ones he did. But that 55 was really sharp. A restored automobile. We know about restoration, don't we? People restore an old house, restore an old car, restore a piece of furniture. These people had the job or the task of restoring the temple, rebuilding it, 
there are some amazing parallels to what happens in the book of Haggai to the restoration of New Testament Christianity today. And I think it would be well worth our time to think about some of those. To begin with, we need to be aware of the fact that the temple in ancient times under the law of Moses, the mosaical system, was a type of the church. You have these figures and then you have the real thing. Brother Marshall Keeble, I referred to something he said this morning, but he comes to mind again. He talked about the types and shadows that the Hebrews writer uses. Talks about the types and shadows of the law and how that they are used to illustrate the things that are really important. And Brother Keeble was, in my opinion, the greatest illustrator. Well, he is the greatest illustrator I've ever heard because he used illustrations that all of us could identify with. Uh, maybe I should say uninspired illustrator or outside our Lord, but he was a great illustrator. But he used one that I've never forgotten. He said, now, when you go to the smokehouse to get a ham, and you open the door and the sun is shining in, and there's a shadow of a ham over there on the wall of the smokehouse, you don't go for the shadow. You go for the ham. And he would illustrate that the Old Testament is a shadow or a type of the really important things in the New Testament. Well, the temple would be the shadow. The church is the ham. And when you read so many of the statements in the New Testament, you see that. Know you not that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 3 verse 16. He said also, And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my temple. That's in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 15. A little bit longer passage is found in Ephesians chapter 2, where Paul said, Now therefore you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together grows unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are built together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. Ephesians 2, verses 19 through 21. Notice all of these talk about the church as a temple. Peter doesn't use the word, but it's the same idea in 2 Peter 2 verse 5 when he said, You also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 2 verse 5. Notice he describes the church as a spiritual house, not a physical structure. I do not know all the reasons why God chose to have the temple destroyed that final and last time in A.D. 70 by the Roman government. 
But it was destroyed by Titus, I believe it was. And it has never been rebuilt. There are those who are much more knowledgeable than I who have said that the temple was the heart and soul of the Jewish religion. And in order to show that Judaism had been abandoned or was to be abandoned and was to be done away with, it was necessary that that structure be destroyed and that, that it was really the last edifice of Judaism left standing. And so that would signal that the Jewish religion had been done away, that we were no longer under the old law. We know that in Colossians 2, Paul talks about the fact that the law was nailed to the cross. And here's a statement that has always intrigued and interested me. And that it was taken out of the way. Now, we could apply that perhaps in the very way or to what we have talked about today, the way of the Lord. The way of the Lord is no longer Judaism. But within the context of Ephesians and Colossians, you begin to see that it has been taken out of the way as the middle wall of partition. It stood between something. I told somebody as we were eating back there today, boy, we may have to knock out a wall. I mean, there was a lot of people and not much room and so much food. I think the food took up more space than the people did. But if you could knock out a wall, it'd give you some more room. Walls separate. I mentioned this morning when Ronald Reagan told Gorbachev, tear down this wall. There were people on one side of that wall that couldn't get to the other one. They had family members on the other side of the wall. They wanted to see them. They wanted to be with them. But they couldn't have those exchanges that families need to have. And that wall came tumbling down. Some of us witnessed it on TV. Well, the middle wall of partition... The law of Moses was taken out of the way. What did it stand in the way of? Jew and Gentile coming together in one body. The one true temple of God. Both Jew and Gentile now can enter into the temple of God. Oh, the Gentiles were allowed into parts of the temple, but it was sort of the Gentile court. Uh, you stay out there, you know. But now Gentiles have a way into the holy place and the holy of holies by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's a beautiful thought when you stop to think about it. And study what the Bible has to say about that. Taken out of the way, nailed to the cross. We're now in the spiritual house of God. Those who hear the gospel, those who believe it, those who are baptized in compliance with the commands given therein as penitent confessing believers become citizens in the kingdom of God 
And they have all the rights and privileges and blessings of all other citizens in the kingdom of God. doesn't make any difference what color your skin is or what nation you have come from. It doesn't make any difference about social standing, how much money you have, how little money you have. It doesn't make any difference whether you have an expensive wardrobe or you buy your wardrobe at a yard sale. It doesn't make any difference. All our brothers and sisters in Christ, they're fellow citizens. We need to be aware of that. It's a very beautiful concept. But think about it for a moment. Why was this restoration necessary in the book of Haggai? It was necessary because God's temple had been left in ruins. It had been destroyed by the vast armies of the Babylonians. Historians tell us that the last time Nebuchadnezzar came back, he wasn't too happy. And he said, in effect, I've had enough. And so the city was destroyed along with the temple. And the fine implements in the temple were carried away. There were very precious metals there. Mentioned this morning that the gold in the temple would have been worth probably millions or billions today. And incidentally, wealth in America no longer is measured in millions. It's now billions. The billionaires are the one who makes the waves nowadays, not millionaires. You know, there's lots of millionaires. There was a fellow in Carthage many years ago that we were riding along one day and was driving him, driving him to a uh, dialysis treatment. And he said, started naming all the millionaires that lived on his street. Named them one by ones, went out to the street. When he got to his house, and I called his name, I said, and you. And he said, well, no, not quite, not yet. But, you know, he was thinking about millions. A million dollars was a lot of money. Now it's measured in billions. Well, there's no telling how many wealthy people there were in Jerusalem. How much wealth could have been measured from the temple itself? But all of that was in ruins. Have you ever thought, why does the Lord's church need to be restored? Because it's been wasted and laid in ruins by corrupt doctrines, false doctrines, by human traditions. When the restorers begin their work in this country and other countries, they alluded to the fact that, you know, so-called Christendom is so hopelessly divided. Why do we have all these sectarian names? Why do we have all these sectarian doctrines? Why don't we just call ourselves Christians? Why don't we take our stand on the Word of God? Why don't we get back to the simplicity of New Testament Christianity? And they called upon people to lay all those denominational ties aside and just be Christians. I believe that's still a valid plea. 
several, several years ago now. I've been in Carthage about 38 years, and this is probably within the first eight years I was there, if not less. I was invited to two denominational churches to speak. Speak only to their men's group, not an assembly. I told both people who called, I said, uh, I'll be glad to come, provided it's not when we're having a service. And if there are no restrictions or qualifications on what I can say and what we can talk about. And they both agreed. The first that I went with or to talk with was a men's group, at a denominational group there. And I simply talked about the differences between Churches of Christ and that particular religious group. Had a really good discussion, even opened it up for questions and answers. Then I went to another group and spoke with them, and I spoke about the plea of Churches of Christ. I didn't do it from the standpoint of our having a creed or anything like that. I said, these are some things that we plead for. Do Bible things in Bible ways, call Bible things by Bible names. And we had a, a good visit with them, treated very cordially. I did that on an early Sunday morning, believe it or not. And uh, a member of the church at Carthage went with me. And our plea was, let's just be Christians. And you'd be surprised how many of those people said, you know, that's right. One man told, me, told us on the matter of baptism, uh, we were talking about a particular point, and he said, I said, here's what the Bible says. He said, well, and I read it out of the Bible. And he said, well, if the Bible says it, that settles it. And I said, you're right. It's good to hear somebody talking like that. I tell you that, not boastfully. I'm telling you that because there are opportunities to teach out there. And there are people who still think that the plea simply to be Christians is valid and good. They just don't know anything any different than what they have always been heard. One man said, I'm glad to be an American I'm glad to be a Christian, but most of all, I'm glad to be, and he used the name of his denominational group. He placed being a member of that denominational group over being a Christian. Why can't we just be Christians? See, that's the work of restoration. But human doctrines and traditions have laid in ruins in many times, and I really fear, as I mentioned this morning, that that's what's taking place right now in churches of Christ. With the onslaught toward female leadership, instrumental music and worship, and countless other things that are going on. But then, too, I want you to notice that there was a, a remnant that departed from Babylon and came back to Jerusalem with a very noble purpose. And in Ezra 1 verse 5, you'll learn that that purpose was to rebuild the house of God. That was their purpose. We need people today to have that sense of purpose, that sense of resolve. We want to restore the church of our Lord. We want to restore New Testament Christianity. And we want to keep it pure. 
Remember the story about the fellow who had the job of climbing up on the mountaintop where the spring was that provided water to the city? He was the one who cleaned out the spring. But he began to get a little older. Nobody else wanted the job. And so the people in the town said, what's the use? You know, ain't no need being out that expense. We've been paying that old fellow all these years and done him a favor, you know. We need to just do it. Don't forget it. We got plenty of water. And it wasn't long until the old gentleman died. People began getting sick. Finally, finally, when they got around testing the water, it was so contaminated, they were, it was carrying all kinds of diseases down to those people. They didn't bother to keep the spring cleaned out. We got to be sure we keep the spring cleaned out. The spring is God's word. We got to stay with it. And the pure water that flows therefrom will be pure. You see, there's a lot of people, as I said a while ago, that have tired of denominationalism but they don't know anything different. Sometimes when I preach on things like this at Carthage, there will be people who will come to me, and these are people, I don't know how many members we have at Carthage who have come out of denominationalism. But when you start talking about some of the things that are now going on, they said, that's what I left. That's what I left. I do not want to go back to that. What is going on, they'll say. Cannot understand it. There was a man who told me the first gospel sermon he ever heard made him so mad he couldn't see straight. He said, I just, I just knew that that gospel preacher was wrong. And he said, I started studying my Bible. I was going to prove him wrong. And he said, I learned the truth. I know several people that that exact same thing happened to. One man at Carthage told me, he said, this guy used to keep coming to see me. He was working with the church in Carthage and some other congregations in the county. And he said, he just got to picking on me. He said, I, I was raised in a denominational church and he found out I liked this girl that was going to Carthage. And he said, he just started coming and seeing me. Every time I turned around, he said, I'd look out the door and there he came. He said, one day, he said, I lived up in an upstairs apartment. He said, one day I raised a window and climbed out on the roof to get away from him. Said, I hid from him. Just pretended like I would at home. Said, he knocked on the door. And I just ignored it. But he said, you know, in a few days, here he came again. That man serves as an elder in the Lord's church at Carthage now. So many, you know, need to be told there's something different that's available to you. You don't have to be a member of this, that, or the other denomination. You can be a Christian. And let the Lord add you to his church. But you know something else about these people in the book of Haggai? They came to the right place to rebuild, didn't they? 
the temple had to be rebuilt in Jerusalem. They couldn't rebuild it over there in Babylon. They had to come to Jerusalem to rebuild that temple. Do you know what we have to do in order to rebuild New Testament Christianity? We have to return to Jerusalem too. The Jerusalem gospel. The church only existed at Jerusalem for a little while. That was the only place it was in existence, in Jerusalem. Wasn't that what the prophets said, Isaiah 2, Daniel 2? Both prophets said it's going to happen in Jerusalem. It's going to happen in the days of the Roman kings. All nations will flow unto it. Read the book of Acts and see if that isn't all fulfilled. So we need to return to the Jerusalem gospel and church. That's where we need to go to. That's the ground upon which we must stand. The early disciples continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, not church doctrine. Not this particular catechism. I have several of them in my office. I have several... Uh, uh, disciplines and manuals of various sorts that I have collected over the years for study purposes. You know, there's one particular manual that said something back in the 1950s, and I've searched in vain in the newer editions after 2000. I can't find that statement anymore. The one about the doctrine of salvation by faith only is a most wholesome doctrine and full of comfort. It isn't in the newer editions of that manual or discipline. I have a manual that says, oh, uh, baptism may be essential to obedience, but it isn't essential to salvation. Is there anything wrong with that? Quite a bit wrong with it when you start analyzing it, isn't it? Baptism, you know, is, may be essential to obedience, but it isn't essential to salvation. Well, is obedience essential to salvation? Hebrews 5, 8, and 9 say that it is. We need to recognize the importance of going back to that Jerusalem gospel. I remember when Brother Dial Flat would talk about I'm here to just preach that old Jerusalem gospel. That's one of the last things he said in a meeting at Carthage many years ago. These people, too, were united. Restoration requires a uniting of people. In the early days of the restoration movement in this country, people came from all kinds of different backgrounds, religious backgrounds, and they became one in Christ. And it was amazing at the things that happened. And in Ezra 3, 1, you read that these people were united in what they did. And before Haggai 1 ends, uh, Zerubbabel and uh, Joshadak and, and others were united in spirit and saying, we're going to do this. They feared the Lord and, and they set about to do the work and, and they worked. And you remember... Nehemiah talks about the people had a mind to work, a willingness to work, and, and they put their hands to the task and did it. They were united. We need unity in the Lord's church, not just union now. There's people that talk about we need to 
unite with all these religious groups that, you know, teach all kinds of things. More about that in just a moment. But the importance of unity. G.K. Wallace used to illustrate the difference between unity and union is this. He said, now you can take two old tomcats, tie their tails together, and throw them across a clothesline, and you've got union, but you will not have unity. Now, country boys can understand that. There's a lot of difference between union and unity. You know, there's sometimes two people get married. And they fight like the proverbial old two cats, you know. I mean, they just, they just seem to love to fight. But that isn't the unity that God wants. We need to be unity or united. They began by laying the foundation. And we've already seen, uh, if you go back to Ezra 3, 10, and 11, you'll find that to be the case. That, that's how they began. They laid the foundation. That was the most important thing, as we mentioned this morning. And the foundation is the most important thing today still. What is that? Who is that foundation? Well, 1 Corinthians 3, 10, and 11 tell us that it is Christ. He is to be preached. No other foundation can any man lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus the Christ. We need to be preaching Him. And telling people it's by His authority that we do things religiously. We don't do like things we just like to do. Most of you know that I love bluegrass music. I really like the bluegrass sound. I just enjoy it. But like I believe Adam Clark says, you know, music is a science I esteem. But in the house of the Lord, it's an abomination. There's a place for it, for enjoyment and so on. But God doesn't want it in His worship. And we must honor and respect what he has said. The authority of Jesus Christ is what determines what we do in worship. Not what the majority of the people want. And sometimes elders are easy prey. They give in when a lot of people begin clamoring. Well, we're going to leave. We're going to take our contribution elsewhere. I remember an incident many years ago. When somebody in protest dropped a blank check in the collection basket. That was before the days of when you had your name and address and phone number and, and social security number and all that stuff. You know, you didn't have all of those identifications on check. It was just a counter check. But this fellow objected to something and he dropped a blank check. I didn't know about it till later. When I learned about it, I said, if that ever happens again, I want that check. And they said, what are you going to do with it? I said, I'm going to preach on it. And they said, what, what are you talking about? I said, I'd love to preach a sermon on the testimony of a blank check. Can you think about all the places you could go with that? Well, we never did get another one. But that was a, a protest. But people will do that. They'll try to hold elderships hostage. Well, if you don't do so-and-so... Uh, you know, if you don't start using instrumental music, why, well, we're going to move and, and you're going to miss our contribution and all that. Thankfully, I know some elderships that would open the door and say, you know, this is your way out. You don't want to do that. You don't want anybody to leave. You want people to respect what God has said. But sometimes choices like that have to be made. These people 
refused to compromise. Go back and read the book of Ezra. I told you the book of Ezra was the background to the book of Haggai. Go back and read the book of Ezra. In chapter 4, you'll find that those people refused to compromise with the people around them. You know, when you do that, sometimes people will turn against you. They seem to think that your values are not nearly as important as theirs. And so they may say all, thing, all manner of things about you. Jesus told us people would do that. The people of Israel lost their distinctiveness by trying to blend in with the peoples round about them. They chose not to be different. They began to say, we want a king. Well, why do you want a king? We want to be like everybody else. And it wasn't long before they lost their distinctiveness. We have a group in Carthage. Not long ago, they had a marquee that uh, made some statements, and I, I use those, as, and I may mention them in another sermon, so I'm not going to tell you what they were now. Keep, uh, that's a teaser. You'll come back later to hear that. Uh, but now they have one up advertising their meeting. And uh, they have a sign that says, uh, Great Fried Chicken. You know, something to that effect. They call themselves the Refuge now. I talked to a man just a couple of morning, Sunday mornings ago, homeless fella, heading back to Florida. He said, oh, I'm just, I just visit various churches in Carthage. I said, like where? And he said, well, I've been down to this church. They called the refuge, and they wanted me to leave. I thought, you call yourselves the refuge, and then you ask people to leave? He had some problems. I agree with that. But he sat on the front seat in our services two weeks ago man and a woman sat right behind him, talked to him, visited with him. One of our elders sat right over on his right-hand side, talked with him. He wasn't the cleanest fellow in the world, but he was welcomed. We knew he had some problems, so we were alerted the necessary people to that. He stayed for the whole service. I hope it made a difference. He thanked us when he left. You know, we need to be loving, we need to be kind. We need to be firm in our resolve to do what God wants us to do in all things. Their refusal to compromise, if you continue to study the books of Ezra and Haggai, resulted in their facing extreme opposition. Because they wouldn't compromise, they were opposed Think about the things that have been said about churches of Christ over the years. And I've never, I don't think, had a persecution complex like some religious people do who think they're persecuted. But the opposition became so great that they resorted to the authorities and reported that these people building the temple, you know, were not the kind of people they ought to be. They stopped the building for a little while. I'm not trying to be the prophet or the son of a prophet, 
But there are things going on in our country that makes you wonder if that very thing might not happen today. The voices of some of us preachers, might people might try to silence us. Brethren, we need to be ready for that. What are you going to preach? I read those what one writer called clobber passages regarding homosexuality. That's not my term now. That's the term used by a female preacher in the Tennessean a few weeks ago. She called those passages from Genesis 19, uh, Leviticus, or Genesis 15, uh, that area about Sodom and Gomorrah, the passage in Leviticus, passage in Romans 1, and uh, other passages about it. She called them clobber passages. I put them every one on the screen and read them verbatim. We need to let people hear what the Bible says. The day may come when we do that under threat of imprisonment. The sad reality is that about less than 5% of our population is promoting that. Same-sex marriage has been overwhelmingly defeated in two popular vote elections even in liberal California and yet people say it needs to be the law of the land I learned just a few days ago that Roe versus Wade was in effect overturned about 20 years after its passage and that it was pretty well understood that the Supreme Court was going, but one justice changed his mind. Do you know what, upon what grounds? It was because he said abortion has been in place now for 20 years. And I fear what will happen if we change it after it has been a practice for so long a time. And he changed his mind. Now, fast forward, 2015, Supreme Court is right now making up their minds how they're going to vote about same-sex marriage. Will the justices use the same reasoning that that justice did? Marriage has been for millenniums defined as a man and a woman. Now, if that doesn't set a precedent for a definition of marriage, what would? You're looking at 20 years being the precedent. We can't afford to change it. Well, how about millenniums? That sets a precedent of long standing. Why would we even think about redefining marriage? Given that. That's something for all of us to think about. But do you know what happened? Going back to Haggai, the book of Ezra. After a while... Those restorers became indifferent and lukewarm. And I'm telling you, false doctrine is a great enemy of the Lord's church.
Immorality is a great enemy of the Lord's church. Neither one of those two things are mentioned in reference to this restoration. But lukewarmness and indifference are mentioned. What does that tell us? That tells us that one of the greatest, if not the greatest enemy of the Lord's people is our own indifference and lethargy. Let's not allow that to happen. We need to recharge our batteries regularly. And we need to be willing to stand up for what is right. Not in an ugly way like you've seen some of these protesters do in some of these cities. But lovingly and kindly. But without fear. Standing up for what we know to be God's will. And try to do our best to serve him. Let's get on with the task of restoring. Let's not apologize for a thus saith the Lord. Let's not apologize for what is written. You know. Well I know, I know that that's what the Bible said. But you know maybe it's time that uh, times have changed. And maybe, maybe we need to just uh, change that a little bit. Soften the effect of it. Let's preach the word and be instant in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with all long-suffering doctrine. Let's speak the truth in love. We thank you for being here this afternoon. And if you would like to be just a New Testament Christian, why not come in simple obedience to the gospel of Christ, repenting of every sin, confessing the sweet name of Jesus before this good audience, and being immersed in water for the remission of your sins, the Lord will add you to his church. You can serve him faithfully therein all the days of your life and confidently expect to live with him eternally in heaven. If you're a wayward child of God, either a son or daughter that's gone back to the world, why not come back home as the prodigal did in Luke 15, confess your sins, not anybody else's, ask God's forgiveness and be restored and just consider yourself a servant in your Father's house. Come if you're subject, as we stand and as we sing.